All right. Welcome everyone back to another episode of Seaweed Brain. Today we're going to be diving back into the Trials of Apollo, specifically the second book, The Dark Prophecy. I don't know if everyone can handle the excitement because today we are going to Indianapolis. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, everyone. It's true. The word on the street is true. We're going to Indianapolis today in none other than the second book in the Trials of Apollo series. I didn't finish it an hour ago. I actually finished it much sooner than that because I was so eager to read it. And I enjoyed it so much that I I read it so quickly. We're joined today by three very special guests who are going to help us explore the beauty and the joy and the quests of Indianapolis. We have two returning guests and one special new guest creating our pentagonal table of conversation today. So everyone say hi to Owen from Through the Mist podcast. Hello, I'm back. Hey, Owen. Maddie, who is coming to us from where? Oh, I'm in Seattle, Washington. Seattle. (laughs) Maddie is coming to us from Seattle, one half of Fatal Flaw podcast. You know her. And we have a brand new guest, Lily. Hi, Lily. Hi. You don't have to tell the internet like where you are in the world, but if you want to, you can. <laughs> sure. I'm Lily. I'm from the Chicagoland area. Amazing. I um, literally cold messaged Lily on TikTok to come here today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but we would love to know about your Percy Jackson origin story and why you're here. Yeah. I mean, I grew up reading Percy Jackson, like waited book for book in like late elementary, middle school. So those are like the 2010. They were kind of like what my friend group used to like be friends. We have this lunch table where we all bring our Percy Jackson books and we talk about it at uh, lunch. Um, we were also like all the ethnic kids. Called, so we called it the smelly Percy table because we all had this, like the smelly food in the Percy Jackson books. Um, <laughs> it was super fun. It was like the way we stayed friends and we are all still friends. We have like this weird um, group chat called Camp Half-Blood on Instagram that we started back when Instagram um, first started DMs. Like, that was the first group chat we ever made, and it's still going, and we're really excited for the new TV show to come out. So, Percy Jackson, it's been something that I've held on to, like, for a long time. That's so cute. It's beautiful. This is our own little smelly Percy table. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) True. Um, Shout out to the smelly Percy table in the Camp Half-Blood group chat. Shout out to the Camp Half-Blood chat <laughs> when did you i guess i'll ask this when did you read trials of apollo because most people have a different timeline on that than the original books yeah i read it at some point in like high school i was like oh maybe i'll like try them and then i tried them and like was like mm, and then left them it was like late high school <laughs> and then now i reread them again after you're like oh hey do you want to do trials of apollo book two and i was like i guess i'll go back and reread it silent <laughs> i'm not the book's biggest fan i'll say the enthusiasm is unparalleled today and do you have any 
godly parent, monstrous race, pantheon alignments in particular you would like to share? (laughs) Growing up, I was like, oh, I wanted to be like Poseidon or Apollo or like something like cool, but I'm definitely a Hephaestus child. So yeah. How is that not cool? Yeah. I feel like little me would have like wanted like something like, ooh, like musical or like I can like do water or something, but like, no, I'm a design major. I do construction related things. I'm definitely like a tinky dinky building things gal. I'm, I'm a Hephaestus kid. I love that. That's awesome. That's Lord Tinkerer to you. Yeah. I'm pretty sure Leo says that in this book, right? Yeah. <laughs> Tinkerbell vibes from the fairies movies. Yeah. I've never met in real life a child of Hephaestus who I'm not a fan of. I feel like everybody we know who's ever said Hephaestus is some of the coolest people. That's namely yeah. Ola, for the record. It's true. It's true. And Mike. <laughs> oh, and I'm super excited to be here, by the way. We're excited to have you. <laughs> Also, this just occurred to me, but aren't your parents farmers? <laughs> okay, kind of. Because I was like, wait, are you going to have to talk about Demeter and like farming powers for us? No, okay, this is kind of a funny story. So like my family's not farmers. We're definitely from the Chicagoland area. But during the pandemic, <laughs> my parents travel a lot for work. And during the pandemic, they were home all the time. So they like needed a hobby. So they impulsively started like a garlic <laughs> for some reason classic um, why was she gonna wow. do in it so um, when you say garlic <laughs> farm this is like a like a large-scale operation that this is not um, just producing garlic for your household huge large scale but like it's growing um <laughs> my mom's like found some land and she's put her little garlic on it it started like in the backyard and then it got bigger and then my mom works with farmers very closely. So they were like, we'll give you some space to do this project. And then they like made like a little tiny home and like put the tiny home on the like little garlic land. And then um, I made a TikTok that went viral um, about the garlic. (laughs) Um, So then we got people who were buying the garlic and yeah, so it's kind of expanded. Do you make a lot of garlic confit? Um, No, my... My mom mostly uses um, the garlic to make tonics, like health tonics. Oh, okay. Yeah. I love that. Um, I like that I've a been lot. in college since this has been happening, so I don't know, like, the details about making the tonics. <laughs> I just know that they go to their little farm to do a lot of work, and they work very hard. So that's their project. <laughs> it sounds like Stardew Valley. They just, they work really hard and <laughs> grow their garlic crop. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's been really bizarre. I never thought it would come to this, but here. So. <laughs> you're you're a child of Hephaestus born to two unlikely children of Demeter. Yeah. I think this is our time to do a quick plot breakdown summary so that we can dive into a discussion of the entire book as always for season three caveat here we will be talking about the book in its entirety we will attempt to not spoil anything beyond this book which should be fine because again i have not read anything beyond this book (laughs) if you haven't read the entirety of the dark prophecy and you don't mind having us break down the whole thing for you you can stick around and hopefully the conversation will make sense after the summary and if you are afraid of spoilers feel free to pause here and finish the book it's pretty quick and then come back and Carter, go ahead. 
All right. So we begin arriving in Indianapolis, we being Leo, Calypso, Apollo, and Festus. The team escapes a monster attack from native Indianapolis monsters into this place called the Way Station, which is basically a queer room of requirement staffed by an iconic butch femme couple, two former hunters whose daughter has been recently abducted. From the Way Station, we go on our first mini quest as requested by the Goddess of Nets. Apollo and Calypso are sent to the Indianapolis Zoo to try to find the griffins that lived at the Waystation, which are now part of the Emperor's Collection. You'll remember, of course, that the villains throughout these five books are the Triumvirate, three old evil Roman emperors who have sort of become semi-gods because people have worshipped them over time. We're in the territory of a new one of those emperors who has stolen these uh, griffins along with a bunch of other rare monsters to bring them as part of new gladiatorial games that he's trying to put on. While they're at the zoo, Meg reappears to help them get out of some trouble. She's run away from Nero, and they all escape the zoo together with the Griffins. We have a quick flashback where we figure out who the emperor is who is in Indianapolis and is going to be our main opponent for this book. That emperor is Commodus, who is basically a hot, carefree, violent dummy. Um... So relatable. <laughs> Important backstory here is that within this book's world, Apollo murdered him in order to save the Roman Empire, but also Apollo dated him before all of that. Okay, after this, the crew uh, ventures together, the crew in this case being Leo, Meg, and Apollo, through the Indianapolis sewer system to try to get into the Emperor's Palace, because they're trying to rescue uh, some captives, and also to get this throne that is going to restore the sanity of people who have visited the local oracle. It not only restores their sanity, but also allows them to deliver coherent prophecies that can be used to, you know, get information about the future. This is particularly important to us because the daughter of the way station running couple did go to consult the local oracle and therefore has, you know, like, I don't know what the appropriate terminology for this is because this is, you know, based on really old, really toxic conceptions of mental health and ability and things but their daughter is like not coherent as a result of her trip there and the throne is going to help her become coherent again and also get us a prophecy to help us the rest of the way so anyways we go in there they accomplish the task but it also ends up being a trap where they end up in the cult stadium which is also a gladiatorial arena and they must fight off a bunch of monsters challengers and also uh, race cars because it is indianapolis the hunters show up and rescue everybody we escape and we also bring the like lieutenant of the emperor with us, who is Lit. You might remember Lit from The Lost Hero, or you really might not remember Lit at all from The Lost Hero. I which super is also very Lit. understandable. <laughs> Lit uh, being the son of King Midas and the uh, corn husker who we met in Nebraska. The master swordsman. Yes, very skilled. Okay, so at this point, we uh, diverge into two quests. Apollo and Meg go to visit the Oracle, which is like a two-mile drive out of Indianapolis. You might remember that another part of the conceit is that each book, we're also venturing to a different Oracle to try to rescue, restore it, because the sources of prophecy are being stolen or contaminated or, you know, like taken over by Obscured. the triumvirate. Yes. So we're going to the Indianapolis local Oracle, which is basically a spirit in a watery cave that as a part of the process will often mentally incapacitate people until they sit on this throne that we have recovered from the cult stadium, which will allow them to like, you know, regain their coherence and also deliver the prophecy. Apollo initially is planning on receiving the prophecy, but Meg tries to channel his emotion music magic, uh, which we saw in the previous book. And in the process of doing so, becomes so emotionally vulnerable that the Oracle spirit there decides that she 
is the person who's seeing the prophecy and so it therefore incapacitates her the vessel. and renders her incoherent yeah that leaves meg incapacitated so apollo has to try to resuscitate her rescue her escape with all of them together which she does and then he uh, blows up the oracle behind them at the request of the spirit of the oracle who is also apollo's son who hates him then we reunite with the rest of the team. This is the Waystation folks. This is Leo and Calypso. This is basically everyone else we've met who we like over the course of this book. They're all together fighting a battle at the Waystation, which the Emperor is trying to destroy because the prophecy told him that he had to in order to succeed and take over Indianapolis. They're winning and they secure their victory when Apollo unleashes his full godly form despite being immortal and blinds everybody. At the end of the book, we get a new prophecy, which tells us that new Rome is in danger. And in the next book, Meg and Apollo are going to have to go together to the southwest with a satyr through the labyrinth in order to figure out who the third emperor is and try to take back the next source of prophecy. And the book ends with Meg summoning Grover from a tomato patch to be that satyr guide. All right. Good job, Carter. <laughs> That was very coherent. <laughs> Would everybody like to go around in a circle and share just in a quick couple sentences their initial thoughts on the book before we dive into some more specific conversation? Carter, since you did the summary, would you like to start us off? Sure. Um, to be honest, I like this book more than I thought it was going to based on how I felt about the first book and who I knew was going to be in this book. Um, that said, you know, there were a lot of cool elements that I thought were interesting, but also I found the book a little more confusing than certainly most of the other books confused about the stakes and the the pacing of it mostly yeah yeah owen uh some fun law things but you know like physically hate apollo in it for the entire time so <laughs> incredible uh maddie so i actually completely forgot that any of that happened and i'm really glad <laughs> carter did that little summary because it was all um, for you <laughs> it really was i am the target audience of whatever that was um so yeah i think that kind of sums up my feelings about the book is that i literally forgot the whole plot so um <laughs> there you go. and here we are I don't actually remember why I agreed to be on this episode of the podcast. We'll still have a good I'm time. Sorry. Hopefully, Edit probably we'll I'm do our sorry. Best. <laughs> and from memory, I think it was uh, you. You didn't want to have your reading go to waste. <laughs> oh, did I say that? <laughs> yeah. Well, now that we know why Maddie is here, um, <laughs> initial takes. I agree with your hot take. I Apollo is so annoying. <laughs> Honestly, I can't. Not that I can't stand him. I just can't. Um, <laughs> there are other characters to enjoy in the book, and I enjoy them when they appear. But definitely being from Apollo's point of view um, with irksome. And also, I do agree there's also like pacing things and stuff like that. But I also like there's like little niblets that are super fun. Like, I really love Wayfair. I really love having the hunters around or ex-hunters. Definitely some fun stuff. Sweet niblets. <laughs> I really enjoyed the book. People were, to be fair, giving me extremely low expectations going into reading this. Like on the <laughs> internet, low. 
in our podcast <laughs> discord like on twitter everybody's like oh good luck kid getting through that i don't one. know who these people are i don't know anyone that has strong <laughs> feelings of hatred towards this book but i actually really enjoyed it i think it's low-key underrated based on how cool emmy and joe are nobody told me that there were going to be two lesbian retired hunters who run a queer like halfway house room of requirement in this book and like that's where we were going to spend 90% of our time loved them loved that loved them like giving chores like living in domestic bliss all of that was really fun there wasn't a lot of hunters but when the hunters were there I loved that I enjoyed the elephant and I also think that the arrow of the donut <laughs> is extremely funny and much funnier than any other character in this book I honestly feel like Rick puts more personality into inanimate objects than he does into women <gasps> <laughs> I just like his women's side characters are like not super fleshed out, but you've got like the I don't remember what Magnus Chase's sword is called, but you've got Jack, that sword. Jack the sword. Jack the sword, and then you've got this arrow, and they're both like very fleshed out characters with like a whole arc. Like Jack even has like this romance with some other sword. I think he feels <laughs> really comfortable assigning like male inanimate objects like flaws and interests yeah like personalities and um, <laughs> weaknesses in a way that he i think feels a little uncomfortable doing with um some female characters no i think that's really true carter i think that's really true <laughs> also would jack be into the arrow of dodona question discuss no i don't think so they would have clashing personalities no i think jack's a bit uh he, he likes his swords. Jack's a sword guy. And the arrow's <laughs> yeah. an arrow. So it's like... He's a sword sword. Yeah, he's a sword sword. You know, he only likes other swords. Okay. Sword for sword. Sword for sword. You'll <laughs> <laughs> occasionally flirt with an axe. I, I think that's as far as it'll go. Oh my God. Well, <laughs> that, let's transition out of that. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I feel like we're not going to be as negative as the internet feels like we might be. And also, as we all know, that we have the capacity to be. But let's let's begin with some positives. We pulled some quotes that are just delightful little excerpts of Rick giving us some of his best one-liners in this book. Um, there's an early scene where they're trying to get away from some monsters and the way that Apollo decides to do this is that he is going to stall and tell his own story as a Greek tragedy. And because it is a Greek tragedy, it must, of course, have a tragic Greek chorus. Greek chorus! That is... Legally Blonde will be the We're not going to explain the <laughs> reference. I think it's for the audience to know and to DM us about <laughs> if they're chilling, fun, cool people. Um, any Delta news? Um, anyway... Um, Calypso fulfills this role by chanting something that is really going to be familiar to you if you were forced to read any Greek tragedies with a certain style of translation in high school or college. Um, in response to like Apollo describing one of his injuries, she says, quote, poison, like the breath of Lester Papadopoulos, most worthless of teens. And she continues several times to react to everything Apollo says by comparing it to Lester Papadopoulos, most worthless of teens hilarious i enjoyed it comedy <laughs> you might not know if you don't read this book and we didn't talk about it last time every single chapter in this book begins with something that rick Wright would probably describe as a haiku but which japanese literary scholars will tell you is not a haiku for any number of reasons including the lack of seasonal referential words the fact that the syllable designation is actually a very poor attempt to move the form between different languages, whereas in Japanese, really, it's five letters, seven letters. Anyway, all of that aside, there are two of them that 
I think are worth highlighting here. Um, would anyone like to read these out of the outline? Of course it's a trap. With her, it always is one. Trappy. McTrap face. Thank you. Yeah, that, that's, that's a poem about the goddess of Nets, who is um, <laughs> kind of the only goddess we meet in this book. Shout out to Nets. Um, <laughs> and then we have another one. Start with the C chord. Not all the keys, Meg. C does not stand for chaos. This is referring to a moment where a Meg attempts to get them away from a police officer by telling them that she's on her way to piano lessons. And Apollo is very judgmental of the way she mimes piano playing for a police officer. Delightful stuff. A couple more one-liners. Apollo says at one point, quote, I'll call you lit, though you don't strike me as very lit. When was what year was this book published? Oh, no. Was this 20, 2015, right? 2016? I feel like we're getting closer to 2016 now. 2016, probably, right? We could Google one. this. Google exists. Um, I couldn't possibly Google anything. <laughs> There's also the line when, at the end of the book, when Commodus like, jumps out the window, and then they're like, wow, he literally just fell out of the window. And then Leo's like, no, he literally <laughs> fell out of the window. Delightful. I-, I looked it up. It was early 2017. So already Whoa. too late. But, oh my know, God. Like, Rick would have heard oh, about this. He would have <laughs> insisted. Um, relatedly. Quote, perhaps they were engrossed in an epic Pokemon Go battle. That Mind really you, again, set us in a time this period. This was published a whole year after Pokemon Go to the polls. And yet here we were. <laughs> delightful, delightful stuff. <laughs> this is bringing back, like, horrible memories, I feel like. <laughs> this is a 2017 period piece. We, we should keep that in, in our minds. Even though it's set in, like, 2013 or something. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the timeline, very confusing. Is it? I don't know. We could break it down if we really wanted to. That seems like an Owen thing. These whole (laughs) books go completely out of whack. There's a later one where they reference um, Black Panther, so, you know, none of it makes sense. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I feel like reading a Rick Riordan book is like, you just have to take yourself out of the real timeline and put yourself into the Riordan verse, because things are happening at different times. They match, but they don't. Yeah, yeah. The Riot versus Madness. Yeah, there are definitely cultural references in this book that are like the Black Panther one. In this book, there are some that we're going to talk about later that specifically are not consistent with the timeline of the book. I think the Frank Ocean one was most like. Anyway, we'll we'll <laughs> I'll, I'll circle back on that. that one upset. But um, I think it's time to transition into some fun discussion topics. Woohoo! Woo-hoo. So fun. We love so a fun, fun discussion light. topic. As promised, fun and light episode on The Dark Prophecy. Our first topic of discussion is, of course, the way station and its residents. I think we can all agree that the way station freaking rocks. It's set in the, I think it's called the Union Station, right? In Indianapolis. Yes. I put a picture in our in our outline. Maybe I'll post a picture to our Instagram feed. You can look it up. It's on like the Riordanverse wiki, but it is a real building that's very pretty. And the concept is that it's sort of like the top floor that you can't actually see or get to unless it appears to you. Um, and it's older than Joe and Emmy. It's been there for a long time. Artemis just kind of allowed Joe and Emmy to become its caretakers when they left the Hunters, which means we should talk about Joe and Emmy leaving the Hunters. <laughs> yes. This book makes a very fascinating choice to eliminate ambiguity about something that people have always talked about and always wondered about the hunters of artemis which is that rick always used very specific language about boys not being allowed and that's pretty consistent with the mythology as we understand it and therefore 
It would have been really easy for everyone to just not elaborate further on that and for us all just have delightful conversations about the combination of asexual people, bisexual women, lesbians, heterosexual women who have decided to not like ever interact with um, men in a romantic way. Perhaps we might even think of it as a historically women's institution that has embraced people of other genders as time has gone on and in ways that are comparable to other historically female institutions. Instead, you know, it gives us something delightful, but also like they really let you know in no uncertain terms that in fact there is no allowance for um, women being in relationships with other women (laughs) in the Hunters. There are no relationships allowed, period. Mm -hmm. How do we feel about this choice? I feel a little bit bad about it. It's giving the (laughs) Artemis asexual rep that a lot of people want and deserve and crave. It is disappointing that you can't like live forever with your girlfriend and the hunters as we all previously thought until reading this book. (laughs) But we do know that should you desire to retire from the hunters with your girlfriend, Artemis will allow you to give up your immortality and will give you like a retirement care package and like set you up with a savings plan and release you into the world and you still kind of participate in hunter culture, you know? (laughs) You're like, (laughs) yeah, they still have a good life. They're still friends with all the hunters. That's why we meet them. The hunters are all familiar with the way station. So it's like an alumni association. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's a good way of describing it. Alumni association of lesbians. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There are like other ways I feel like this could have been handled. Like I am really honestly baffled as to why they didn't write it in as them saying like, oh, they really wanted to like have children or specifically like this couple wanted to grow old together or have yeah certain experiences that absolutely we know the hunters don't allow like you can't you know raise a growing child as someone who is forever 13 years old that makes sense i would have gone with that but it is it is what it is and the way station is 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 delightful does anyone have any elaborations about it um all i can say is is thumbs up good we love it (laughs) i came across a realization today about the way station that it's just the labyrinth if the labyrinth was nice (laughs) Mm. and being cared for by lesbians yeah there's no lesbians in the labyrinth that's why it's so dark and horrible (laughs) true Mm -hmm. i feel like both rick and viria who did the art and like everyone is just doing emmy and joe so dirty because it's stated that they're like in their early 60s you know and this art is violent it's official (laughs) viria art that I put in our outline, it, it it's making them look old and haggard, um, especially Emmy. I mean, Joe looks fire, but Emmy, Emmy does not look good at all. Like very bad. Sixty one is not that old. <laughs> Sixty one for someone who like lives in the way station. Also, so these are people who do their own organic farming. Yeah, they like. They are not really out. exposed to too much sunlight. You know, like everything that you could do to age gracefully, they do. We and don't yet. know. They could be chain smoking cigarettes and drinking a fifth of vodka a day. Like I I have no idea what goes on there. After hours, you don't know. They're definitely smoking a doobie before bed in the way station. Let's be clear about that. Hundred percent. The vegan tofu, whatever, gives it away. Yeah. <laughs> so then the question
Yeah. Are you like, oh, those 17 times I fractured my spine when I was yeah. a girl are really like catching up to me now. Yeah. Exactly. If you listen to Oscar Wilde, he would say, yes, it absolutely catches up to you because the picture of Dorian Gray, it's all coming together now. There's also an old Japanese folktale that has the exact same understanding of aging. If you know, you know. Um, Uroshima Taro, shout out to um, the gigantic horse that he... Turtle. Sorry. The gigantic turtle that he rode to the bottom of the ocean. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Do not forsake your responsibilities on Earth and make sure that you take care of your aging parents. Lest it all catch up to you and your friends are dead when you return from your partying under the ocean. There, I summarized it for you. <laughs> that was very delightful. Yeah, and a good explanation of why it's not Rip Van Winkle because Rip Van Winkle didn't give a shit about his parents. Um. <laughs> We should start a Japanese folktales podcast. That's kind of one of my dreams right now. Aww. Anyway, can we talk more about Joe and Emmy? Just a little bit more. Because <laughs> I do think they're my favorite part of this book, other than the arrow of Dodona. Their backstory is really interesting because Emmy was the daughter of, oh God, the daughter of someone important, a princess. She, she was, was a princess, a right? grandchild of Dionysus and a princess. Yes, both. Yeah. Anyway, she and her sister were going to jump to their doom and prayed to Artemis to save them. Apollo thought they were praying to him, turned them immortal, and then basically Emmy Hemathea joined the hunters. And Joe was from the 1920s and was apparently like a liaison to bootleggers from like African-American bootleggers and white bootleggers and was like involved with the mafia and like knew Al Capone. And at one point, Apollo was like, wow, it must've been pretty wild for like a woman to like be doing that. And she was like, they didn't know I was a woman. (laughs) (laughs) Got their asses. Got them. But also join the hunters. She would have had to have only been like 14, 15 while she was also doing that. So, like, I have so many questions about Josephine in particular and her history. Joe, because of her connections to this era of mob violence, also her weapon of choice throughout the book is a machine gun. (laughs) It is an old-fashioned machine gun, which really also makes you wonder, like, this person was not just 16 playing this liaison role. She must have been getting into it as that (laughs) 16-year-old. working for the mob <laughs> i'm all for gun control but give a lesbian a machine gun and i'm in it 100 <laughs> <laughs> percent. joe and emmy are they a little bit stereotypes yes yeah. yes kind of they are like they have these really rich Some biographies stereotypes are true but also like the book really i feel like relies a lot on you having a mental image of what a lesbian couple with one femme person and one not as femme person looks like and then you're supposed to kind of just extrapolate from that to understand a lot of things about their relationship dynamic and personalities and the extrapolations kind of work like to be honest they still both kind of slap as characters even though a lot of it is based upon these generalizations that were probably made a little lazily what are you gonna do one of them is a child of hecate also is it emmy or joe why am i blanking on this emmy is because one of them helps Calypso to Emmy. her magic. It's Emmy. I think it's Emmy. Joe is a child of Hephaestus, no? No, it was that um, her father was a mechanic, and that's why she was good, right? Yes, I, th- I think you're right. No, Joe is the daughter of Hecate. That's where it is. Oh. <laughs> Emmy, Emmy, or Emmy's only connection to like the godly pantheon is being a hunter, obviously, but also being a grandchild of Dionysus, as we mentioned earlier. 
So Joe is the one who is helping Calypso to regain her magic as this is going on. The Hunters of Artemis standalone novel that I have been, I, we, dare I say, <laughs> us all, have been begging for can follow Emmy and Joe's love story. Why not? I want to hear about Whoa. them meeting. I want to hear about the 1920s. I mean, Rick's already got a plan for that novel. Wait, what? Really? Is this true? What is the plan? Literally, the end of the book five of Apollo, he sets out, like five, literally the end of the book, we go, spoilers, we go and visit everyone that he saw in the books previously. It's a nice little roundup. Yay. Every single story point that he thought of as a short story or as a standalone novel is set up then. So we get the setup for the Nick and Will, Will book. Okay. And there's some sort of, don't tell us, but there's some sort of hunters set up. There's some sort of hunters set up. I think it's half set up in this book as well. I remember when Carter and I were on that Daughter of the Deep um, Zoom book event thing where it was announced that there was going to be this big announcement. We were both keeping our fingers crossed that it was the Hunters of Artemis book. Because I do like people were like, it's either going to be the Nico and Will book or the Hunters book. And then it <laughs> ended up being the Nico and Will book. Okay, well, we'll see. I look forward to it. <laughs> I will invest my money and my time and energy into a book about Josephine. There would be so many cool opportunities for co-authors. Anyway. Some other quick um, notes about the way station. There are like really lovely descriptions, just lovely um, in terms of the way that different spaces in it are laid out. Like they have this description of like a glass section on the top of it where the griffins live. It's full of like trees and other things. They have all these gardens. There are still some weird things about it. Um, shout out to the fact that the way station, despite being a queer oasis, also has a boy wing and a girl wing that are completely separated. Yeah. Um, I found that really funny. Um, <laughs> I Okay, I, I wanted to insert a shout out here to one of my favorite pieces of media, which is a old-ish manga called Shimanami Tasogare, about a boy who seeks refuge in this queer cafe in like kind of the middle of nowhere in the inland sea of Japan. It's very lovely and also has a similar energy. I feel like it's like almost tropey now to like really center the found family community space of a bunch of queer people who don't have somewhere else to go. But there is simultaneously not enough of this content to adequately reflect the multitudes of, of these spaces that exist and the types of them that exist. So shout out to that. Does anyone else have, have other, uh, other thoughts about um, the way station? Yeah, the way station was giving the same energy to me as I'm blanking on what the house is called, but in the Kane Chronicles, they spend a lot of time in that Brooklyn like, house. Yeah, I was getting that energy a lot just because like a big portion of the book takes place there. In the Kane Chronicles, that felt very much like a community home. I mean, I guess it's also like schoolish vibes too and stuff like that. But yeah, Kane Chronicle vibes. I like that reference, yeah. One last thing. I don't know why they chose Indianapolis. I'm from the Midwest and I can appreciate a good Midwest moment, but like <laughs> no one has ever been like, let's go to Indianapolis. No, I completely agree. Was I the only one that when read this when the whole reason it's set in Indianapolis is because it's a nothingness place and it's a joke. Like the setting yeah. itself is the joke. Yeah, it is a joke, but I don't find it funny. <laughs> <laughs> The other two emperors of the triumvirate have placed Commodus in between them as like a monkey in the middle, the weakest of the three, to separate Nero on the East Coast and whoever it is in the Southwest. But much like Nero taking over Long Island to build a summer palace, what are the stakes <laughs> of Commodus re recolonizing Indianapolis as Comedianapolis? 
No, it's not the recolonization. I mean, there's like sports teams and stuff there. Well, yeah, there's like IU. They mentioned the Colt Stadium. They mentioned the Indy 500. The stakes are that he's killing animals and also may have human slaves. So yes, there are stakes. They should have put him in like Chicago because that is a big city that the stakes would have been higher. But also smaller Midwest cities need some love too. Indianapolis is not a good place. I've been there. I don't like it there. I will never return. But they need some love too. It's fine. I feel like, yeah, they do need love, but this is not what love for them looks like to me. And also, if you sum up the pages that we've spent in different cities, I feel like probably Indianapolis is more than maybe any other city because every other book we're moving we're traveling through a lot of different places have we spent more time in new york city than we've spent in indianapolis i am not sure i think they have because the whole last olympian is set there yeah but last olympian for part of it they're like out of the city on long island at the beginning maybe like two-thirds of that book is actually in new york city proper i think last olympian is also longer than color though so yeah, yeah, that's probably true. No, but it is true. There's a lot of time in Indianapolis. Way more time than any other non-New York City event. That one I'm 100% on. <laughs> this is sort of similar to the first Charles Apollo book that was like entirely set in Camp Half-Blood. So no spoilers from the folks who've read yeah. the next books in, in Charles Apollo, but I'm interested to see if we're going to like spend the entirety of the next book in the Southwest slash New Rome, like whatever's going to go on there. Yeah. I'm not going to say where, but yeah, you're right. Okay. <laughs> every book every book is very singularly placed every book is actually sponsored by the department of tourism for whatever <laughs> state it's set in so rick had a financial obligation to extensively google maps write. to google maps <laughs> and let you know that he can name three streets in every city <laughs> just because he named them though doesn't mean they're right trust me he gets london mugged up badly wait i have to shout out It was our wonderful listener, Theseus, who was on a listener drop-in episode before. But shout out to you, Theseus, who messaged us after our um, Magnus Chase episode the other week, talking about, like, the thinking cup and being like, yeah, the thinking cup is mid. And Theseus was like, I guarantee Rick just Googled Boston cafes, and it was the first one that showed up. And then Theseus, the Googled Boston cafes, and the thinking cup was the first one that came up. Oh, my. I literally went to the thinking cup yesterday, because it is right off of the common, so it's very accessible but the thinking cup literally does not have wi-fi can you imagine a cafe with no wi-fi why Why does it have wi-fi how is samira getting her work done with no wi-fi no thank you no thinking is being done no Mm -hmm. thinking is it time for a wrap-up quote (laughs) anyway time to wrap up the way station and joe and emmy this is page 185 um as joe is sharing her history They called me Big Joe, etc. back in the day. Apollo says, My sister has saved many young women from horrible situations. Yes, she has. Joe smiled wistfully. And then Emmy saved my life again. Uh, You two could still be immortal, I grumbled. You could have youth, power, eternal life. We could, Josephine agreed. But then we wouldn't have had the past few decades of growing old together. We've had a good life here. We saved a lot of demigods and other outcasts. Raise them at the way station. Let them go to school and have a more or less normal childhood. Then sent them out into the world as adults with the skills they needed to survive. I shook my head. I don't understand. There's no comparison between that and immortality. Josephine shrugged. 
It's okay if you don't get it, but I want you to know. Emmy didn't give up your divine gift lightly. After 60-odd years together with the hunters, we discovered something. It's not how long you live that matters. It's what you live for. Aww. And that is the thesis statement statement of the series. Yeah. It is. (laughs) Jinx. (laughs) I think Rick really likes being mortal. I don't... Rick always played that game growing up where it was like, would you choose this or immortality or whatever? And he always chose whatever the other option was. He would never be immortal. That's kind of beautiful, though. Shout out Cersei. Shout out uh, Lightyear, the movie, which is also like literally the exact same thing as this. I'm sorry. <laughs> Carter, did you view Lightyear, the movie? Because that is wildly off-brand for you. Is it off-brand for me? I feel like I... Did you pirate it, though? If you paid money for it, that's wildly off-brand. It's on Disney Plus now. So, um, shout out uh-huh. to um, you. <laughs> oh, you used <laughs> Disney Plus? Good. <laughs> Watch Lightyear. I mean, I watched it at like 2.2 times speed. It's just Buzz's journey to understand that um, literally like a lesbian woman can have other values in life and a valuable life that are, <laughs> are not um, readable and valuable and worthwhile to him. That is so true. I did go see that movie too. And I, that is basically the plot. <laughs> I guess let's pivot then to, to Meg and Apollo as people, as people who interact with each other. You might remember last book, we left off with Meg betraying Apollo, revealing that she's been working for Nero the whole time, who is kind of a father figure, kind of, to her. She refers to him as her stepfather, but also he murdered her dad. Maybe he understood he was doing it at the time. It's kind of ambiguous. Shout out to Darian on our other podcast saying that if somebody murdered your dad, you should get over it in order to have a more meaningful friendship with them. (laughs) Oh my god, that did happen. Shout out to that. (laughs) Listen to Entering Storybrooke. Um, Meg does this. She double crosses Apollo, but then she sort of also double crosses Nero back again and doesn't allow the forest of what is it the grove of dodona i'm already blanking mm-hmm. the like the grove of dodona she doesn't allow it to be burned down either because she's like i'm a child of demeter you can't just destroy forests and stuff but it's left kind of ambiguous she doesn't ever talk to apollo and have a follow conversation after this and we assume that she goes back with nero afterwards in this book we open on her with nero again nero is sending her off to commodus but with escorts who we understand are basically moving her as a hostage, as a prisoner or something like that across the country. She escapes them. And then within, I feel like around the end of the first third of the book, would we say reunites with Apollo and we're all solidly on the same team again for the rest of the book. Do we really have a follow-up conversation about it? We have a moment, I guess, that is meant to be their emotional reconciliation, explaining everything when she saves Apollo in the cave of the Oracle and gives her slightly more detailed emotional backstory about her relationship to Nero and what he did to her father and how it felt for her as a child to be going through these things. But it happens pretty quickly. Yeah. And it seems to maybe not be something that is going to be recurring as an emotionally confusing thing for Meg, at least if not an emotionally resonant form of trauma for her throughout the rest of the series. How do we feel about this? I know things and I don't know whether to say the things or not say the things. (laughs) It's not gone. That story's just, like, started. It comes back. Mm. It doesn't end until the book ends. Like, that, it... Meg's story is the trauma. Mm. And you've got to learn it. Yeah. Okay. Lily? Well, it's kind of good to hear that it doesn't go away, because, like, I feel like 
I mean, it's horrible, but like her trauma is like a huge part of her character. And I feel like it wasn't discussed as in depth as it should have been maybe in this book. Um, but also like if we're putting things in like her perspective, like she is still a child and she probably doesn't even know the depths of like what she's been through still, even though she's like beginning to unpack that now. Um, also like, I guess it does also make sense for her age group, but like there was like one scene where like Apollo's like making up with where her, where he's like, oh, like let's come to like our new terms and services or whatever. And like more than half of the word she says is no, <laughs> which is like <laughs> same, but like, also, it's really difficult to, like, know where we're at because the person who's, like, trying to tell where she's at is, like, how old is she, like? 12, but arrested development around five, I would guess, when her dad died. Yeah. So, like, not completely developed, still physically very young, like, still processing what's going on. Really, she just left her abuser, so... There's a lot to unpack, and if she, as a character, isn't ready to unpack those, those things, then us as readers aren't receiving it. So, absolutely, yeah. But I'm glad we learned more about it in later books. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I, I, I thought it was kind of weirdly fast how Meg showed back up and joined mm-hmm. the good side again so quickly, only because I feel like usually when Rick makes a big character twist, then that mm-hmm. twist plays out for the rest of the series. I, th- I think a lot of these books at very fast paced the toe books a lot of it a lot of them are very quick it's like next thing next thing next thing next thing next thing yeah but i liked it because meg and apollo's dynamic has really grown on me as apollo learns how to care so much for her and starting to navigate this relationship where he talks too much and is a big oversharer and she is shut down like 99 percent of the time completely <laughs> and then obviously he witnesses apollo witnesses some of her memories that we don't know how much access she even has to those when she is inhaling the dark oracle energy and Apollo sucks it back out of her, he experiences some of her memories and gets more of a glimpse into her past. And that's how we know about more specifically about Nero murdering her father and stuff like that. Yeah, their dynamic is really heavily informed by this thing where Meg isn't very forthcoming. And then there is some sort of traumatic event at the end of both of the books that we've gone so far that forces us as the reader and Apollo also, to gain all of this information without her volunteering it or without her yeah. sharing it or thinking about it, even really, like, it's not because she's processing it with him. There's just some process, supernatural or involving some sort of villain or something that gives us insights into the ways in which she's been hurt. And then she, we haven't seen her ever talk about these things with Apollo. But it, I don't know, I, I, I think it's like mostly makes sense to me that Apollo treats her differently as a result of these things, but also doesn't try to have follow-up conversations about it. Like, it it makes sense to me. I'll be watching it. I I feel like there is a way that this could go that will lead me to look back on the way that that dynamic is written in this book and be like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. We love it. This was part of a good and healthy, interesting progression of a character dynamic and of one person working through some issues that was fun to read. What is the thing that we don't love, though? The fact that we have no idea how powerful either of them is and when Apollo accesses his godly powers and how and, like, how long can he keep breaking his oaths on the river Styx and yada, yada, yada. And, like, why is Meg becoming the most powerful child of Demeter ever to exist? And how is all of this happening? Why can Apollo summon light sometimes? Blah, 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 blah. Some of those questions will be answered. Some of them won't. All will reveal itself. Yeah. But do you have to finish all five books for the questions to be answered? Or uh, no. 
asking for a friend. <laughs> I, got to, I got to book three and then I, I just couldn't go anymore. But I will eventually. <laughs> I like to say that I also, for the record, love Lit being a large part of this book. I love a callback to like a semi-minor character from a previous series becoming so important here. I think that's really fun. Especially amidst this sea of so many new characters. I agree. Lit, Lit has a an arc in this that is not super original, but is also like perfectly fine. <laughs> you know, like he is someone who is working for someone he doesn't want to out of necessity. He's given an opportunity to um, change it up, fight for different things, redress some mm -hmm. harms that he's caused. And he, he takes the opportunity and we love that. Um, the other big power moment that we mentioned earlier is the fact that Apollo, at the end of this book, unleashes his godly form i mean it sounds like it's just a minor version of it because no one vaporizes on sight but he blinds some people and the consequence that he experiences from this it sounds like is he tans he gets the really writing tan. of this is really ambiguous it's a maillard effect he maillard browns <laughs> the proteins in his skin are changing color um due to the heat energy that he is producing oh <laughs> i know science <laughs> There are explanations given for some of these things. Apollo does this whole thing where he's like, oh, I can't defend myself with these power-ups, but if I really need to, it seems like I can defend other people. He gives this whole speech at another point about how he's willing to die in order to save Meg. Maybe I would say 40% on board with um, this narrative about who has what powers at what times and why. I don't know if anyone else wants to weigh in. Owen? No, I am. <laughs> Sorry, Carter just said something that made that clicked. I was like, oh, it does happen every single time that thing happens. Where someone's in danger. Yeah, but otherwise there's no official reason given. Yeah, which is literally like the cheapest shonen anime convention, like power of friendship bullshit. But it's also confusing because they're constantly in life and death danger. So like, why is sometimes they're super in life and death danger and then it works, you know? Like, I'm all for the power of friendship making a magical ponytail, you know? Shout out to Chihiro, but <laughs> I think also worth noting is that Apollo starts using a lot of music magic in this book. And there are many, many Uncle Rick lines about being like, it makes sense that I'm the god of music and healing. I suppose I'm finally realizing after millennia of being a god because <laughs> music and medicine is really one and the same. This is a good opportunity to transition into a segment where I will just read five or six different quotes from Apollo and mercilessly dunk on them for how gross <laughs> they make me feel as a reader um, and the wildness of the cultural claims that are associated with them. I'm ready. Okay, first, the first thing is not a quote. It's just to say that Apollo in this book is so horny. Oh my God. Every other <laughs> reference to a person is just Apollo saying, wow, I wanted to get with that person. It's historical figures. It's real people that he meets in real life as Lester Papadopoulos. That doesn't end. I know. No, it kind of happened last book too, but it's more in this book because we're meeting it's more a lot. people who are not like his children. And so now constantly, like when someone mentions a celebrity, Apollo's like, oh, I almost was in a relationship with that person. Or I recorded backup vocals on their album and they never credited me. <laughs> yes. It is like literally... I think we mentioned Jimmy Lajamil last time. It is exactly Tahani. Tahani Lajamil. <laughs> way more exhausting. Okay, it's quote time. First quote. He got too much power and fame for, at a tender age. It messed with his head. 
like Justin, Brittany, Lindsay, Amanda, Amadeus. There are so many things that we could say about this. First of all, Mozart's first name was not Amadeus. That's one Google. Second of all, (laughs) (laughs) it was Wolfgang. His name is Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Rick saw one movie and rolled with it. (laughs) Second of all, I don't care if it was supposed to be a character establishing thing that Apollo is maybe an evil little sexist twink as we got into a little bit last time. But I guess it was of a time or something when he was making these jokes and that he really felt like this was the kind of thing that a kind of mean, culturally knowledgeable character would say. But this is meant to be a joke that is mostly about the mental health of women being exploited. I don't care for it. This is like also a children's book. I just have any number of questions about why this is included. Quote number two. How do I know the basics of a fast food kitchen, you asked? I had discovered the singer Pink while she was working at McDonald's. I found Queen Latifah at Burger King. I spent a fair amount of time in such places. You can't discount any site where you might find talent. What is going on? I just don't even know where to begin with this. This is so... Remember when Hermes took credit for the Underground Railroad? This is Apollo (laughs) taking credit for Queen Latifah and also Pink. Yes! That's just not fair. Queen Latifah was not just some person sitting around a Burger King waiting for a white (laughs) Greek god to tell her that she was talented. Please! What is going on? There are just so many layers to the disrespect that are contained within this and also the way in which this doesn't make any sense and is like not necessary to the plot and not funny. Why is this here? Next line. Oh, this one's bad. My heart was humming a perfect middle C of happiness. It's not even a chord. What does that mean? Why isn't it like a C7 chord, you know? It's like that weird sweet spot between like, it would be poetic if you said that the heart was making a musical noise that is like... (laughs) musical you know not just like a note (laughs) but also like it's not physiological either because a heartbeat is not a pitch maybe i'm reading too much into this i just really cackled out loud and also like yelled some things when i saw this line it's fine we can move on this one genuinely was very upsetting quote to speed the process along i sang a song of heat and corrosion i chose frank ocean since his soulful power could burn its way through even the hardest surfaces no, I have to agree that one doesn't really make sense. <laughs> Has anyone ever described Frank Ocean's voice and musical lexicon as corrosive? I don't understand <laughs> what I is going he... on there. Yeah, no, it doesn't quite make sense. Not that we shouldn't be praising Frank Ocean in every way, but like soulful power that would cause like heat and corrosion. It's kind of almost like the opposite of that. Who's Frank Ocean? <laughs> Whoa, whoa, that's a hot take. Wow. Wait a minute, wait a minute. We can't, we gotta stop here. Yeesh. It's more like a warm blanket or like a cool breeze. It's like like somewhere between warmth and coolness, but like not corrosion. Like corrosion implies something so acidic. Let's all come up with a singer who would be more appropriate to like burn into a hard substance. Um... Adina Menzel. Adina Menzel, absolutely. That is a voice. That, those runs at the end of um, Into the Unknown. Exactly what I was thinking of, Into the Unknown. Thank you. I'm picturing someone playing a Sophie-produced Charlie XCX song that would kill a Victorian teenager. And similarly, it would just um, disintegrate 
things. Iconopop. Yes, Iconopop as well. I crashed my car into a bridge. <laughs> like, that is the kind of thing where, like, the unce unce would just, like, break it eventually, right? Like a post-unce-unce corrosive feminine with a sledgehammer type of energy anyway i'm thinking like early 2000s rock pop like m.i.a or something yeah. m.i.a that's a great answer <laughs> Haley williams could corrode some some substances that one riff that she does in the bridge of still into you baby not a day goes by yeah that i'm not yeah. into you <laughs> We've all seen the, the the studio video of this, right? Yes, it's the acapella acoustic. Look it up. I'll link it in our show notes. <laughs> anyway, that feels like enough dunking on Apollo. Oh, wait, one last thing before we leave it. I know this happened. I think this happened in the previous book, but like the rap moment where he like rapped and then like Meg had to like, he was like, oh, Meg, do like the lyrics. And Meg was like, no, <laughs> that moment could not, could not. Uh, okay, I think we should take a quick break and then we'll come back and finish talking about Emperor Commodus, Leo and Calypso, and a few other minor characters that we meet in the book. We're back. I love giving listeners updates as to how long we've been recording because it's never, you know, I always cut things out, but at this point we've been recording for an hour and 20 minutes um, and we have a lot to get through. So first thing to talk about is Emperor Commodus. He is the son of Marcus Aurelius, who you might know because Marcus Aurelius has a book that is popular to read Famous in author. liberal arts colleges called Meditations. You can check it out. Something, something stoicism. God, I'm not smart enough to be here. I have no idea what you guys are talking about. <laughs> I haven't read Marcus Aurelius' Meditations, <laughs> to be clear. Because <laughs> Erica was like, oh, we, we should all know what this is. And I was like, I have no clue what the hell is going on. <laughs> Let's rephrase. You may have heard of Marcus Aurelius. <laughs> if you haven't, it's probably because you were too busy having sex and doing drugs and being a cool person, you know? Um, <laughs> is that better? Is that a better phrasing? <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. <laughs> anyway, son of Marcus Aurelius and Marcus Aurelius's first cousin, um, whose name I didn't write down because who cares about women in history? He was born during his father's reign. His mom had this dream before he was born that she would give birth to two snakes, one of them stronger than the other. And then she like went to a bunch of astrologers to turn out a prophecy that Commodus was going to be very like boring and pale in comparison to his brother. But that ended up not being true because his brother ended up dying as a kid, which left Commodus as the sole heir to Marcus Aurelius's throne. He was known to be a bit of a wacko, which is why he is one of the triumvirate in these books. I will be completely extremely honest to say i never heard of this man until i opened up this book a couple weeks ago me too. never once never a single time same yeah um <laughs> not even kind of i don't know i watched a bunch of youtube videos today about weird history um <laughs> involving this guy it's entertaining because he was sort of like the sole heir to the throne people were obsessed with keeping him healthy as a kid because you know kids tended to die back in the day he had all these doctors take care of him he worked out a lot he was also really into taking lots of baths Notably, he did die in the bath when a real life, historically, somebody whose name was Narcissus drowned him in a bathtub. In this book, Rick asserts that it was Apollo disguised as somebody named Narcissus come to end the terror reign of Commodus. Probably the only thing really that you would know this character from in pop culture is the film Gladiator from the year 2000 in which Joaquin Phoenix plays Commodus as the gladiator. Fun fact, my dad would watch Gladiator like twice a month 
And so, like, every so often, <laughs> I would watch Gladiator with my dad. I don't know why he would do that, but he really liked that movie. No, that's, like, exactly my relationship with my dad, too. I know. It's like, okay, dad's watching Gladiator again. Maybe I'll watch it this time. Aww. My dad, it was Crouching Tiger. <laughs> oh. <laughs> my dad, it was um, Gene Kelly and Fred Astaire's Turner Classic Movies. My dad did that, too. <laughs> <laughs> my dad had diverse tastes um, and liked Samurai movies and also Andrew Lloyd Webber. And that's why I am the way I am. That explains so much. Wait, so do you have, like, <laughs> takes on, like, how Commodus is portrayed in Gladiator? Because I've not watched that movie. Has anyone else watched that movie? Like, <laughs> It's been a while. I've seen it. I saw it last semester. That is weirdly recent, Lily. <laughs> yeah, I took this Greek, Romans, and Barbarians class um, last semester. And the teacher was really or the professor he was kind of a nut house and it was like two weeks where we only watched like seconds of gladiator at a time did you learn anything <laughs> cool in that class <laughs> honestly it's probably all leaked out of my brain by now <laughs> <laughs> valid yeah. valid okay so that's a background on commodus as a cultural figure and also historical figure within the context of this book he's apollo's ex not to, again, reference TERFs who must not be named, but, like, is it low-key a trope now for the villain to be a gay ex? I feel like I've seen this in several other places, but I can't think of places other than, famously, Harry Potter. It's less so that it's a trope, and it's more so that Apollo has dated everyone, so, like, there is a 50-50% <laughs> chance that the villain, or, like, anyone we encounter is an ex of his. Yes. This this is true. Did we not even mention that Georgie, like Georgina, the daughter of Effie and Joe, is also probably Apollo's child? We didn't mention that. We didn't mention that. And she doesn't remember. Oh, yeah. He doesn't remember. He has no idea whether or not it's true. And he makes some sort of comment when he finds out, like, he, he's like, oh, this was also true for this famous singer in history where, like, somebody told me, aren't you this person's parent? And I had no idea. This is like some Nick Cannon shit. <laughs> Wow, dunk on Nick Cannon, Maddie. Um, <laughs> no, that's like a thing right now. It's no, is nobody yes, up it to is date thing. on their Nick Cannon lore? I, <laughs> I, I feel like the British take is Boris Johnson. Yeah. Wait, how many kids does Boris Johnson have? I feel like I did hear about this. Apparently it's up for debate. <laughs> <laughs> no, up for debate. We need to bring Jerry Springer into this. Isn't it also true for Elon Musk, right? Where he has like some number of children by like five different know. people and we didn't know who all of them even were yeah and they all hate him as they should this is why instead of doing drugs and having sex you should just read marcus aurelius's meditation <laughs> <laughs> you're right erica i'll start doing that <laughs> okay part of what's confusing about the relationship dynamic between them is that apollo <laughs> apollo describes this in ways that are very confusing where he says one thing, and then based on what we see of their interactions, we do not see evidence for that thing. Which is that Apollo seems to describe this as a site of a lot of emotional anguish for him, where he has a lot of unresolved feelings, and he's not sure what's going to happen when they reunite. I mean, partially because he, like, murdered him, which, fair, legit, that will cause awkwardness in a relationship. But also, <laughs> when in the scenes where they are together in life, Commodus is not, like, charming. He doesn't ask follow-up questions or anything. It really seems like Apollo just thinks he's hot. 
I mean, that's all Apollo ever needs to think. If your heart yeah, is it's in. Yeah, true. He's not really big into personalities. He's not big into personalities, but then he also describes these relationships in ways that are not consistent with, like, a use him, abuse him, lose him type of personal framework and methodology, if you will. I just found that a little bit confusing, but also I'm sure people like this exist who are, like, simultaneously, like, jumping between people who they find hot without real regard for their personalities, but also investing a lot of emotional meaning into these things. Seems that some of them he was bonded to a little bit more and felt a little bit more responsibility to. And Commodus is one of those people. Along with Hyacinthus and the other one. And some others you're yet to meet. Yeah, some others. Oh boy. He's lived a long time. He's had some great loves, some minor ones. Most of them end tragically. Sounds like my love life. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> Do we have any other uh, notes on um, Commodus, the um, would-have-be-ruler of Indianapolis and... Commodianapolis. Kind of maybe the rest of Middle America, but mostly just Indianapolis. <laughs> Are we to assume he's dead? No. No. And don't they literally say, no, he's not dead? <laughs> no. I stopped paying attention after he fell out the window. We didn't mention this in a rundown. Apollo blinds everybody, and they basically... Cinderella style make a big joke of the fact that he is now blind and they're just desserts and they're pushing him around and playing pranks on him because he can't see anymore. As part of that, they throw him out a window, basically. But we don't see him land. And also he is kind of a god. It is ambiguous. I've got an episode on it if you want more and more. Did you say you have an episode on it, Owen? I have an episode on all of these. Uh, of all three oh. of them. What is the title of it? The Roman Triforce. The Roman Triforce. Okay, go listen to the Through the Mist, the Roman Triforce episode. Yes. All right. Leo and Calypso. Maybe it's Leo and Calypso time now. They are. They begin the book as Apollo's chauffeurs. They show up at the way station. They individually go on some quests with them. They realize that they want to stay at the way station, and then they uh, do. That's basically their arc in this basically, book. Well, basically um, the arc is that they're not doing well. Like... Apollo is not super attuned to what's going on between the two of them. And this is one of the most unstable relationships between main characters, I feel like, that we've seen. They're actively arguing. Calypso does not think Leo is funny. Leo cannot seem to say a right thing around her. And I was feeling bad for Calypso, honestly. Yes. There's a moment right in the beginning where someone literally asks her, like, oh, so did you give up immortality to be here? Like, what did you lose? What did you leave behind in order to be with this person who we do not find impressive? And she kind of takes a beat and she's like, damn, well, um, (laughs) I don't know about all that, actually. Um, No. (laughs) Like, my girl Calypso is having some second thoughts about the fact that not only she gave up her home and her immortality, but she gave up her magic. And she didn't really know that she would be giving up her magic by leaving with Leo. And she's like a sorceress. Like, that's who she is. Obviously, she is on this now journey to recover her magic, like we talked about. But I feel bad for her. She's like, I made a mistake. Yeah. Like, who is this kid? Oh. I feel like the book doesn't play up enough the fact that when we talk about famous sorceresses in Greek mythology, it really is Circe calypso like right there definitely top two i will say the resolution that they give this surprised me in a good way where at the end of the book one of the things that they say is 
more or less that they want to be able to exist separately from each other. Literally. Um, Leo and Calypso. That is that Calypso wants to be able to grow up and have a real teenage life that will sometimes in some moments not include Leo so she can figure out who she is now that she's left. Because all of these changes have happened for her at basically the same time. Like she's entered this new relationship for the first time. Like this is her first serious relationship with a person who is probably going to stick around literally ever. And at the same time as that, she's also like lost her magic. She's lost her immortality. She's left her home. She's in fucking like 2013, 2017, somewhere in that time period in America. In Indianapolis. It's rougher. Yeah. I didn't write down the quote, which I'm so mad about and I can't find it, but she does say she and Leo want to figure out who they are together as normal teens, as well as separately. And she wants to spend time just like with friends. And Apollo is like, wow, she really looked wistfully at the thought of spending time with friends. Because if you think about it, the only people she's interacted with for the entirety of her immortality are men who she's been forced forced to have romantic feelings for. She hasn't had a platonic friend in thousands of years. Calypso needs to become a girl's girl again. (laughs) The way station is absolutely the right place for her to do that. I I think she's having a great journey. She needs to make friends with some hunters. Yes. Yes. We got to read a quote for specifically how it's not just that they're miscommunicating and this is a comedy of errors or something like legitimately their relationship, as we all should have known from the conceit of it has some baked in issues. There is a moment where they are mid battle and Calypso says, quote, he's not my rescuer. And Leo responds, wait, I kind of was actually. What? Oh, those are fighting words, Leo. Not that I enjoy their suffering, but I do feel vindicated in the fact that we all knew this was not going to work out easily. Poor Calypso. I like Calypso as a character on her own. But with Leo, mm-mm. And she does also deliver some fiery roasts of him throughout this book. After we spent so much time in Heroes of Olympus talking about Leo being a perfectionist and a workaholic and somebody who views the world as a machine and a machine that has fixes and is very hyper fixated on the fact that he can fix everything. And that is the thing that drives Calypso nuts in this book. Especially in the first half, she is constantly being like, Leo, you can't fix this. Like, I am not a machine. Stop referring to me as though my wheel is broken or something. I am a person. Stop making jokes when you're uncomfortable that aren't funny. And like, just absolutely. (laughs) Oh my God. If we could get Calypso on an episode of Seaweed Brain and we could all just (laughs) dunk on Leo. (laughs) It'd be a good time. I was really disappointed in the Calypso-Leo relationship because when they first got together, it could have been this like really good enemies to lovers plotline. And then Leo had zero character growth between that and this book. And so there's just absolutely nothing there. And I, I'm a Leo apologist. Okay. I like Leo. I'll defend him. I think he, he's an interesting character, but Rick has given him no character growth. He has been the same character the entire series. And it's getting on my nerves a little bit. Absolutely. This was the last thing I wanted to say about Leo, but in the vein of his growth, I feel a little bit thrown off just plot-wise at the fact that he is such a big part of this book and appears to be a big part of the next one based on where we leave off because of the fact that I feel like if you were one of the seven demigods who helped to defeat Gaia and went on this huge quest on the Argo 2 and all of this, 
there's a lot of plot armor surrounding how powerful you are, yeah. how like cunning yes. and smart you are, how capable you are in battle, first of all, and just like how well you're going to do on quests. And it feels weird that Leo is suddenly massively underpowered. He was the one who came up with the whole idea. We were like, Leo's the smartest demigod. Like <laughs> he was the one who figured out that it was going to be him who sacrificed himself. He pulled off coming back from the dead and navigating his way back to Calypso. And then he's like stuck trying to like, wrench a gate open in this book it like does not track for me he should be percy level powerful at least close to it just somebody that we call on distantly for advice when things get really bad you know yeah absolutely i personally don't really like that he paired everyone up because it drives me nuts when people can't just be happily single or whatever um but mm. i think it could have been really interesting if leo had like gained all this confidence from literally saving the world but he's still like super awkward around girls cannot speak to a romantic partner because that's like relatable to the, the yeah. kids that are reading these books that is super relatable because middle schoolers are so awkward i'm 26 yeah. i'm still awkward <laughs> <laughs> yeah i like that super quick we do need to shout out our girl talia who shows up at the 11th hour in this novel and there is i don't love it but i do appreciate it call back to the tension we witnessed between talia and apollo in the titan's curse in this book i screamed we had to mention it unfortunately unfortunately but apollo was like why do i recognize this hunter and then he was like oh and then he's like, he like has the nerve to be like, Talia, I don't think you came here just to help the way station. I think that you came here to see me. So awkward. And then she like jumps up onto the elephant to like ride with him back to the way station. And he's like, this is fulfilling a daydream I had about her long ago. And I was Ew. like, what? <laughs> uh, what? Yeah, I was not vibing with that. That was very icky nasty. It was giving... You're so old, and she's 16, and was just a tree. It was just a tree. <laughs> and she was like, I was just a tree. I was ha My eyes were, like, <laughs> having sap poisoning or something. <laughs> That's the only reason I thought you were attractive. Oof. Oof. Uh, yeah, the hunters, weirdly, are kind of both everywhere and nowhere in this book, where they're kind of a frequent presence. I feel like we didn't learn anything about them, but also, like, it's always nice when they show up. We did learn one cool thing. One cool thing we've never heard of before and one aspect of lore, which is that the hunters have their own version of nectar, which is called moon water. And it just looks like water, but it's maybe has a little bit of a silvery glow and it's their version of like an energy drink. And Apollo gets a little bit of it. And Talia says that he's maybe one of the only men ever who's gotten to taste it, which is pretty cool. It just makes you want to know, like, how many other things... Apollo literally says in that moment, he's like, how many other things has Artemis been hiding from me? And me as the reader, I'm like, how many cool other things do the hunters have that we don't know about? Like, I want to know. I want all the hunter world building. I want to know about all the other places that are like the way station that the hunters have. Yeah. Okay. We are going to talk next about someone who we did not mention in the plot breakdown, but who is relevant and interesting to us anyways... This person is Olujime. Most interesting character. Like, in the beginning, like, there are pages and pages of the only thing we know about this person basically being that Apollo thinks that they're hot. This person was imprisoned by Commodus with a whole bunch of other people in his palace coliseum thing. And then he helps to defend uh, the way station in the final battle, along with all the other people who were imprisoned there. 
We know that he was in prison because he was fighting for money for Commodus, like in his little gladiator games, but not because he supported Commodus just because he needed to make money. To pay for grad school. He's in grad school in Indianapolis for accounting. Rip, rip, rip. Trying to get a master's degree. Rough. <laughs> Most importantly, though, this person, Olujime, we see him fighting in the final battle. And Apollo notices this as it's happening. And then he has a debrief with Tali about it afterwards, where we are confirmed several times that it's magic, but it's not magic that is Greek or Roman and that Apollo can recognize it all. And he specifically is, so is like, cool. this must be a power derived from some sort of Yorba like pantheon that he doesn't know about. Which is both interesting and frustrating because, like, Apollo as a character, like, Rick writes Apollo as saying, like, oh, I feel bad. I don't know enough about, like, African gods because I just never got south of the Sahara. Oopsie, my bad. Which both feels like something that would be true of a representation of what Western culture holds up as important. Like, a deity of America probably would not know enough about cultures in the global south but also is incredibly a cop-out and is giving us um a character that seems like i really like when i was reading this i was like damn is this like a connection to an rp book that i don't know about is rick drafting another series and no this character really is like a one-off just in this book who has these interesting powers and has powers that are connected to other pantheons that we're not going to learn anything else about wait he doesn't come back in the rest of the trials of apollo no that's it he's done what? You literally know nothing what? about this dude. He's amazing. I love him. That is <laughs> so wildly much. upsetting. I was certain that he was going to show up. He's like a big ass like staff that unleashes thunder. That is unre- It's like red lightning. Yeah. That Apollo is like, that's cool shit. I've never seen that before. That doesn't look like my dad's lightning. <laughs> this part gave me chills because when he first appears, we don't know much about him other than he's hot. And then we find out he also does accounting. We don't know that he's a demigod. He basically says what I'm assuming is a Yoruba word yes. that means like, I'm one of the others. And I was like, okay, so this is going to come back. We're going to find out what that means. Like, we don't know if that means he's immortal or if he is, I don't know, like some kind of other magical being. And then the way that Apollo describes it, like, it's not even that the lightning is red. It's that the light, it's slightly tinged. It's only ever so slightly different in a way that is unfamiliar, in a way that says to me that this is some kind of magic but it is something outside of my perception which is just so cool oh my god i'm so upset to find out he doesn't come back <laughs> that's really bothersome but he does have this conversation now i don't remember if it's with calypso or with talia but he's explaining must be talia i think it's with talia yeah so he's having this conversation with talia where he's like yeah obviously the greek gods are used to having other pantheons nearby us the er competition and he says like we're all just different manifestations of the same truth so if there's apollo as a sun god and there's also an african sun god we are but different manifestations of the same truth i don't know why you as a mortal can't understand that uh, personally and beth have already got that down they've already sold that and Talia is Raiden is having a weirdly hard time with this. Not very global citizen of her. Weird. Um, <laughs> I guess the hunters don't have the internet or I don't know. But all that this is saying to me is more, more, more clues, more signs pointing towards the Riordan verse Infinity War and the Riordan verse multi pantheon end game and the Riordan verse multiverse of of pantheon madness when all of the different gods 
when all the different gods, perhaps from the RRP books, will get together to fight Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> You're joking. But... When that episode came out, I was like scrolling through Instagram and I was like, did she not cut that? Of course not. <laughs> You're joking. I'm not joking. I want this to happen more than any more. I care more about this than anything else in my life. <laughs> I desire... <laughs> is for Rick to combine everything. He already did that little Cursed Carnival short story collection with a bunch of the RRP authors. It would be so cool. We talked with Gracie in our most recent episode with her, Gracie Kim, about how there are multiple afterlifes and there's a potential to travel between the afterlives of different pantheons and different cultures. It would be really cool. And we're going to get into the fact that in this book, there are also other mentions of other pantheons, like multiple times. The, like, net goddess, which... Yeah. This is the only deity that we meet in this book, is the goddess of net. The quote is, I was around when the ancient Greeks were living in caves. I started out as a Cretan goddess. When the rest of my pantheon died out, Artemis befriended me. I joined her hunters, and here I am, thousands of years later, still weaving my nets and setting my traps. That's fascinating. Because it's one thing to have multiple pantheons, multiple universes of deities. It is a whole other thing to recognize the like anthropology of yes old-timey religion and the fact that these religious practices are not just like divinely handed down artifacts but like actually political and cultural hodgepodges when regional cultures interact with each other the collective human consciousness that's what i've come to call it yeah yeah for all his books like it's really weird it ended up being this idea of it happens in this apollo says at some point we affect the humans but the humans also affect us yep so whatever we perceive and who and what we remember as a collective human race and then you can break that down further into like western civilization or like america and like you can break it down even further if you wanted that they just live and they are there but also all their stories are true and they also can affect us. And there's demigods and magicians trying to stop their versions of the end of the world and their, it's madness. The rare inverse of madness. I know that at this point, this is a full on conspiracy theory because every time we get a mention of like another pantheon or like a pantheon dying out or like the endangered magical creatures that we get to encounter yeah. in this book and how they're trying to breed these endangered creatures. I just am feeling very strongly that the multiverse is in the works and Rick can take his sweet time. This can happen five years from now. But you're suggesting a different version of the multiverse. Like in one version, we're seeing the multiverse is like about climate change and mass loss of biodiversity, which is absolutely something that makes so much sense and is in line with everything we talked about. But then there's another version of this that is about like cultural preservation where all of these deities are coming together to say like, we are being forgotten. We need to be remembered again so that we can continue to exist and reshape society in a way that like recognizes the perspectives of other cultures to a greater extent. And who is preventing this is Jesus colonizing <laughs> pagan religions. It makes so much sense. I mean, it's the Romans. It's just all the Romans' fault. It's like a lot of people's fault. I mean, like adoption of like pantheons is part of like the practice of like cultural integration and or colonization. Like all the Japanese deities are like actually from some combination of China, Korea, and India. Anyway, these ideas are out there on the internet. Basically for free. So um, for Don't all Google of the it. famous, talented authors who have access to this IP, you know, do something fun. I'm not. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna say <laughs> anything. 
but I am going to say there's definitely a thread that is definitely not hinting at this in the last book. Definitely not. Oh. Okay. I guess we all have to read them. You've only got two more left. <laughs> yeah. Three, Owen. Oh, well, Maddie only has I have two. Maddie only has two. I'll come on for the last book, too, and it'll make it all worth it. <laughs> um, did you want to mention this quick thing about Iphigenia, Carter? Because I think we can skip the Germani and we already covered Indianapolis. I think the Germani is wild. It's going to be quick. We've been here for two hours. Okay, this is going to be like a minute long rant, and then we'll be done with it. So in this book... <laughs> We interact with a bunch of people that are referred to as the Germani. Germanus is the singular. This is a reference to the fact that in ancient Roman times, the barbarians at the edge of civilizations were Germanic peoples who lived in what is current day like Germany, in some cases at different periods of time, present day Spain, present day um, France, present day like Britain also like had people that were considered to be like barbaric, but it was like a, at the time of the Roman Empire it would have been ethnically different. Yeah, um, Britain had the Celts and then the Germanic Anglo-Saxons came and invaded us or invaded the Celts and then that became England. Yes, that happens later. Or rather, at the time of Roman Empire, what we're talking about here are the fact that there are like people of other ethnicities who are outside the empire who are fighting the empire because they don't want to be colonized. And these people in this story are the Germani. Now, like there are a lot of jokes made about the Germani in these books about how they are large and stupid uniformly. And, you know, the first time I was like, oh, haha, this is kind of funny because the joke is that they're just all white people. And whiteness is a concept that exists in America, certainly, that is uniting people across all of these, like, histories of 2000 years ago in Europe, right? So the first two times I was like, whatever, it's fine. But then we get into some really wild territory where basically the Germani are being referred to as a racially different group that is a different species and, like, fundamentally inferior. We have to point particularly to a moment at the end. When Commodus is vanquished, they kill the two remaining Germani soldiers and they vaporize into dust like monsters. What the fuck? These are people. <laughs> These are people brought back from the dead who happen to be like large and strong and of a different ethnicity from the like Roman people who are also around. And they turn into dust like monsters. Like they go into Tartarus and have a cycle of like demonic reincarnation as an idea of what it means to be at the edges of society and a plague. What is going on? I just really felt like in the beginning, maybe this is something I could laugh about, but like really this has very uncomfortable implications for like the way that I think small children will think about what it means to see phenotypic differences in the world and what associations they should have with that. It's very uncomfortable. I don't like it. Does anyone else have anything else to say about that? That's the end of my rant. <laughs> That's interesting that because they're quote unquote barbarians, they vaporize into dust. Yeah. Anyone that wasn't Roman was a barbarian. Yes. That's yeah. literally where it comes from. Like the, the wording, the word barbarian just means not Roman effectively. There was one time where in spite of all these things, I did laugh, which is the fact that he says, Apollo says, quote, no Gaul would have Gaul, G-A-U-L here referring to like people who lived in present day France would have such perfect gleaming white teeth. Which, again, like, I raise all these problems, but also, like, when you say to the French people, like, we do have to laugh a little bit. Wow, um, that is a roast on French people. Eat them up. Dang. <laughs> Dang, Rick. Ouch. <laughs> on fire. Yeah, maybe we do have the last two-second note, which is that one of the hunters who is named in this book is Iphigenia. For those of you who did not read the play, this is Iphigenia of the fame of being at, at Ellis. <laughs> I didn't read the play. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so this is the princess, the daughter of Agamemnon. I think 
oh, I can't remember who wrote the play. I thought it was Euripides. I could be wrong. Oh, it was Euripides. Good job, Carter. A tragic play written about this person, Iphigenia, who is the daughter of Agamemnon. This is right before the Trojan War. Um, they consult an oracle and they figure out that they need to sacrifice Iphigenia in order to have the war effort go well and to specifically bring about like winds that'll blow all the ships to Troy so that they can go fight the war. And right before they kill her, Artemis shows up and rescues her and says, this is like a worthy maiden. She'll become a huntress. And it's really cool that we never followed up on her. And now we find out that she actually survived all these years. Like she didn't get killed in battle and she's still out there being a huntress and not, you know, being sacrificed so that her dad can kill a bunch of uh, people in other countries. Yeah, that's really cool. I'm so glad I got closure on her because I was worried. <laughs> Ever since you read the Euripides play in succession with the Bacchae, you were like, what happened to Iphigenia? <laughs> Is she good? Is she cool? I wonder what Rick Riordan has to say about this. <laughs> well, as always, I'm sure there's some stuff that we did not get to, but I feel pretty satisfied with our coverage of The Dark Prophecy. Again, I really enjoyed this book, and I think that people are a little maybe too harsh on it. I think it's certainly better than The Hidden Oracle. Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah, this is better. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Thank you, all three of you, for joining us tonight. Will you give us a quick roundup of your socials and where people can find you? We'll make sure to also have everything linked in the show notes. Owen, hit us. Through the Mist, at through underscore mist on Instagram. It's the only social I got, but search through the mist on your podcasts to have your law needs met. Woohoo! Maddie? Uh, yeah, you can find me pretty much on any social media site except LinkedIn. Um, <laughs> I, Dude, fuck LinkedIn. All the homies hate LinkedIn. I'm half of Fatal Flaw, which is, I guess it used to be a podcast, but it is. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much doa it's i don't know what's sleep. going on with it Aww. but you can follow fatal flaw at fatal flaw pjo on instagram and twitter or you can follow me myself and i at my kind of maddie <laughs> on every single social media platform also i am looking for a job so if you want to hit me up on linkedin <laughs> uh, you can <laughs> Send those nursing positions. <laughs> well, you hospital administrators listening to the podcast, you know what to do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Lily. I don't have a podcast, but if you just want to follow me for funsies on Instagram, it's Lil Kane. That's L-I-L. And then my last name is C-A-I-N-E-S. And on TikTok? Oh, and on TikTok, I guess if you'd like... That's sugar canes on TikTok. So sugar in the same last name. Uh, that'll just be mostly random content of trying <laughs> an art school and maybe a garlic cameo. Who knows? <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much for your first time guesting on CB Bird. It was such a joy to have you. And thank you, Owen and Maddie. We will be back two weeks from now for, oh my God, the Ship of the Dead. Ship of the Dead. Last wow. Night, yeah. Actually get really excited, not in a sarcastic way. Like, <laughs> like be excited for real. We will see you guys there on the ship of toenails. Bye, y'all. Bye. Bye.